3. We're trying to finish through Jonah chapter 3. And uh, we'll try to make it through without coughing too much through this. Like a lot of you, I have that uh, nasty cough that doesn't want to go away. It's funny, uh, Pastor Nate was talking about <clears throat> those uh, little cards, little Easter cards. I was, man, I was all excited. I, I saw these cards laying after the basketball thing was done. I said, well, these are leftovers. I might as well make use of them. No need to throw them in the trash. I, I might as well give them out. And so last night we went out and ate, and the in-laws took us out. That's always a good thing when they take us out, man. They take us out a lot, too. So I like seeing them in town, but that's why I look like, anyway, that's another story. Uh, but we were out, and I'm putting these things out at Chick-fil-A, and I'm setting them over here, and then we went, you know, went to Walmart, and, went to, and, I, and I went, I witness when I go get haircuts. I go to a lot of different places. I like make the round. I go to different places every time, because I, captive audience, right, I'm sitting in the chair, they got to listen to me. Now, it leads to a lot of bad haircuts, <laughs> right? Because listen, if they don't want to hear about Jesus, trust me. They'll take care of you, all right. And I got one last night, too. Let me just tell you, it was a bad one. But uh, my wife's like, and, and Jeremy, you tipped them. I like, but honey, I gave them the gospel. I got, you know, got to leave a little something. But she understands. But yeah, it's dangerous grounds when you try to share the gospel with somebody and they're cutting your hair. You never want to hear, two things you never want to hear when you're having surgery and a haircut. Oops. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what I'm saying? So, and true story, I heard that one time. It was in seminary, a uh, pastor friend of mine, and uh, he was like, man, I need to get a haircut. You know what I said, Yeah, man, come on, we'll go down here. You know? And so we went to get a haircut, and he's sitting in the chair next to me, and I, and I kid you not, that old, that old lady goes, oops, I'm so sorry, we can fix that. And she just went, <laughs> I was like, oh. See. By the way, he's bald now, but that's okay. It's, uh, I don't think it had anything to do with that, but, you know. Anyway, hey, guys, give out the gospel. Tell people, talk, talk to them, invite them to church. Uh, you know, that's what we're supposed to be doing, right? And uh, even if it ends in a bad haircut, that's all right. <laughs> Give out the gospel. And so uh, I do apologize. Those cards we thought would be in by now, they, they're not. Uh, and so uh, we did uh, put some out on the table. Grab those up. We'll hopefully have some new ones in next week. We did stamp the church and address on the back of the uh, breakfast cards. So please, please take those and invite someone. So we are in Jonah chapter 3, and we've been talking about repentance in this chapter. And so just sort of recapping for those of you who have not been here, here's an outline. Uh, some of you still probably have that little sheet with the blanks, and you can fill it out. Uh, for those of you not, you can take notes on it. This is what chapter 3 looks like. In, in Jonah chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, we see how Jonah repented. Remember in chapter 1, he fled from God. He tried to flee from the presence of God. Bad idea, bad idea, can't do that. And so uh, uh, God comes to Jonah a second time. The word of God comes to Jonah a second time. And this time Jonah was repentant. He decided to obey God and go. And then we see how when he takes the gospel into uh, the town of Nineveh, the capital city of Assyria, that wicked nation, that group that was ruling and reigning and had been for some time. And they come in and, and Jonah comes into that, that town uh, 60 miles radius. I mean, this is a huge city, great city is what the scripture says. And he gave the message that God told him to give to the people. And they repented. They received it and they repented. And then uh, what we're going to look at today and hopefully closing out chapter 3 is God repented. 
Now, what do we mean by that? We'll see this in the text. In fact, why don't we go ahead and read through the text, and I'm going to take it in its entirety since it's only 10 verses, and this will give us, kind of uh, pull us back into the story, because I know it's, it's been a, a week, and, and uh, I know none of you have not, you know, looked at this since last week. Surely none of you have not done that. But anyway, here we go. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach to it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three-day journey in extent, and Jonah began to enter the city on the first day's walk. Then he cried out and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So the people of Nineveh believed God, proclaimed a fast, and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. Then word came to the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne and laid aside his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he caused it to be proclaimed and published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying, Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, take anything, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily to God. Yes, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who can tell if God will turn and relent and turn away from his fierce anger so that we may not perish? Then God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way, and God relented from the disaster that he had said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. Father, I pray this morning that your word would not return void. Lord, I pray that our hearts would be open to receive it. Lord, I pray that you would help us to respond as these people in the text have responded by receiving your word, by believing you, by trusting in you. Lord, if there is sin to be repented of this morning, I pray that we would lay those sins down at the foot of the cross. I pray, Lord, that we would go from here changed from how we came in. Help us to take your word to a lost and dying world. And we will give you the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. So we noticed in the beginning, Jonah repented. The text says Jonah arose, verses 1 through 3. In verse 3, we see how he obeyed the word. And then we see how Nineveh repented, verses 5 through 9. And we saw how Nineveh sat in ashes and how they believed the word. And so we continue on today and, and, and oh, actually we unpack this as well. We talked about how when Nineveh repented, we saw how the crowd repented first. We saw how it even went to the crown and how the king repented. And then we talked about his decree and the communication and how he proclaimed and published this fast and this decree throughout the land. 
Today we're going to talk about how God repented. So Jonah arose, Nineveh sat, but God stood. He kept his word. And what do we mean by this? Well, here's my first question. I left you with this little cliffhanger, to be continued. Join us next week, same time, same bat channel. Remember those old shows and now like this cereal, what do they call it, cereal? I thought that's something to eat, but anyway, it's like a series where you know the next week, you know. Our kids do not know. You young folks, you millennials, let me just pick on you for a second, all right? Y'all have no clue what it's like to have to wait an entire summer until the season starts again. Because <laughs> you just binge, man. You know, we go through a whole 10, episodes, 10 years of a series, you know, and it's like, ah. Yeah, you used to have to actually wait, you know, even to like next week, you know. But anyways, I digress. Here was the question I left you with. Does this make Jonah a false prophet? Hmm? Scooby sense. Huh? What? What are you saying, pastor? Well, think about it for a second. Think about it. Verse 4 said, Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Isn't that the message? God gave Jonah to take to this wicked nation? Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Now, there are many scoffers and skeptics in the world today that will probably try and seize something like this to try and get you Christians to stumble and, 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 and say, see, you can't even trust your own Bible. It, 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 it's, it's full of contradictions. And see, uh, well, well, God obviously didn't keep his word. Here, you know, and so they'll just like to twist things. You know. That's why it's important you join Tyson in his apologetics class. Help give a reason for the hope that's within you. Find some answers, guys. There's answers for this. So I ask you this question. Does this make Jonah a false prophet? Of course not. Jonah prophesied that Nineveh would be overthrown in 40 days. That's what the text says. Well, some interesting thoughts. Let's think about this. Let's unpack this a little bit. All right, so the NIV translates this word overturned, Right? The Septuagint, that's what that little fancy LXX, no, that's not Batman and Superman's arch enemy. The Septuagint translates this word, katastropho. It means turned upside down. Now, there's some interesting thoughts here with this verse. Let's, let's sort of ponder this a little bit. By the way, that phrase, turned upside down, when I see that, when I read that, when I think about that word, I often think about how the 12 disciples were accused of this, right? They're going to turn the world upside down. And praise God, they did. That's why you're sitting here today. So what do we mean by this? Well, Goldman makes this statement. The concept of an overturn could carry both a positive and a negative dimension. If they would not repent it would be destroyed. But if they did repent, they would be overturned. Their hearts would change from evil to good. So whether there was a political revolution or a change of heart, God's word predicting a turnover in 40 days would be true either way. And that makes sense. Right? That's one thought, one theory that's, that's put forth in that. And look, that's not uncommon oftentimes that 
we too even use these types of sayings or phrases even in our day where there's a twofold meaning, a positive and a negative. But what about God repented? How does that work? God kept his word. He stood. But does God change his mind? Because the text says he relented. Now, some of yours may say repented. Um, but I think most translations will say he relented of what he was going to do. But it, it, sometimes people, they read this and they say, well, wait a minute. That, that's kind of a head scratcher, preacher. How does God change his mind? Does he change his mind? I thought he was immutable. I thought he changes not. Right? Isn't that one of the doctrines we stand on? Isn't that one of the things that, that, that we say the Bible clearly teaches? So then what do you do with this passage? And what do you do with a lot of other passages that are like this? We've got to look at the whole counsel, guys, of God's Word to, to try and wrestle through this, this question. By the way, let me stop. I'm going to go back. I don't want to give away too much yet. Think about some of these passages. Malachi 3.6 I, Jehovah, change not. Therefore, you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. Hebrews 13.8 Jesus Christ, same yesterday, today, and forever. James 1.17 The Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. He doesn't change according to the whole counsel of God's word. So what do, we, what do we do with this Jonah 3.10? God relented. If you were in Tyson's class a few weeks back, we had this conversation, this subject of anthropomorphism. No, that sounds like another arch enemy of the DC land or Marvel. No. Anthropomorphism is, is, is a literary style. It's a statement describing God as though, he were a, as though He were human. Because we humans have no other way to comprehend God's nature. Therefore, the statement should be understood that it is speaking figuratively, not literally. For example, when you read through the Scripture and you see things like, God's hand is not shortened. So, so does God have hands? I thought it said that He was a spirit. God is spirit. Right? Or when, when Christ makes that statement of, oh, how he'd like to ga gather Israel in, you know. Or, or, or you think of the uh, Old Testament, talks about taking uh, under, her, under, under his wings. Does God have wings? I think there's a chicken reference in there somewhere too, right? I mean, you know, so does that mean God's a chicken? No, sometimes, guys, when, it's just like any other piece of literature. When you read it, you have to read it in its context. You have to read it to understand, is this speaking literally or is this in the context speaking figuratively? In fact, one of the accusations the Pharisees brought to Jesus was, oh, he said he was going to destroy this temple. And in three days, he'd, he'd rebuild it again. He wasn't talking about the physical temple, right? He was speaking of his body. He was going to lay down his body and take it up again, which is really quite a bigger feat than rebuilding brick and mortar. But sometimes if we're not careful, we can do a wooden literal. And listen, I'm a literalist. I think when you read the scripture, you, you, you need to read it literally. But you need to read it literally based upon its literary style. If it's, a poly, if, if, if it's apocalyptic, 
you're going to read it different because there's types and shadows and things that are being described and you have to use the whole counsel of God to help understand and interpret what it means. Coming on the clouds, does that mean he's literally going to be floating? Meet George Jetson. Is he going to be riding on a cloud? I mean, he could. But there's some symbolism. There's representation of coming in power. There's certain things that we need to be careful in how we read it. Now, with that said, we need not pendulum swing to the other side because this is why we have liberalism today. They want to take everything figuratively. They want to take a creation count and say, oh, he's being figuratively here. Now, guys, I'm sorry. To me, as I, I think that's when you are definitely isogetically going to the text based upon man's understanding today. And that's very dangerous. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Let's start right there, because that's where God started. So we have to read the text, and we have to be careful as we interpret that we're following proper literary style. If we're in Hebrew poetry, poetry reads different than the Yellow Pages, guys. I got news for you. Write your girlfriend a Yellow Pages ad. It's going to read a little different than the poetry. I think she'll like the poetry better. Just a suggestion. Some of you are like, what's the Yellow Pages? <laughs> Ask your grandparents, Okay. <laughs> So some say, hey, Jonah 3.10, this is a literary... He's speaking figuratively. He's not, he's not saying literally that God relented as in the sense of God repents, that God somehow changed his mind. No, the king is saying, hey, maybe, guys, if, if we will do this, if we will follow this decree, if we will fast and put on these sackcloths and cry out mightily to God, maybe, just maybe, he'll turn from this idea of wanting to wipe us out. That's human language. That's human understanding. That's human emotion. There's a lot wrapped up in that thought. Anthropomorphism. God repented of the evil that he had said that he would do unto them and he did it not. Jonah 3.10. But God does not repent. 1 Samuel 15.29 The strength of Israel will not lie nor repent for he is not a man that he should repent. So does God change his mind? Again, we looked at these passages. I read these to you a little while ago. Let that sink in. God does not change or change his mind. When you read this, and it's seen multiple times throughout. You, you think about the Old Testament when, oh, when, when Adam and Eve fell and, and, and when it got to the point of judgment and he was going to wipe out the world because of all the evil in the world. The text says that God repented that he had ever made man. He was sorrowful that he had ever even created man. There are many times where you'll see this phrase, and sometimes the King James will translate it, repent, as if God has somehow changed his mind and he's going to, instead of going with game plan A, he's going to go with game plan B. But is that what he's talking about? There's a word used here, oftentimes when you see that word, relent or repent, it's the word nakam. It's the Hebrew word tra translated, relent, repent, had compassion, or made sorry over. It's nakam. And the root meaning of this word is to sigh. Ever been, ever been grieved to the point to where it just breaks your heart? 
It just aches you, and, and, and like literally, there's no words to describe what you're, you're experiencing. There's, there's, no, there's no word that comes from it. The only thing you just, oh. This word that's used here in Jonah chapter 3 is this word. It's used in Genesis 5, 29. When Lamech, son of Methuselah, names his son Noah, saying, this one will give us rest, from our work and from the toil of our hands, with the ground which the Lord has cursed. The first use of the word is about the hope of a seed of the woman undoing the curse of sin. See, in order to understand this word, in order to understand it in its literary context, in order to understand what God is saying here, you've got to look at the whole counsel of God's word. We've got to look at the whole character of God. We've got to look at the attribute. We've got to understand God for who He is if we're going to make proper interpretation so that we can make application. And so what is going on in this text? Look at the second uh, reference, Genesis 6, 6 through 7. Before the flood, when there, was no, when there was so much wickedness on the earth that the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, for I am sorry, Nachum, I am sorry that I've made them. Does that mean God saying, oh, I knew that was a bad idea. Let's just wipe it all out and start over. Is that what he's saying? In Jonah 3.10, the Nachum of God leads him to not destroy people. But in Genesis 6, it leads him to destroy mankind. Hmm. But in both cases, God is expressing a desire for restoration that would bring relief from evil. There's a common thread. There's a consistency in the very character and nature of God. Oh, now we're getting somewhere in our understanding of this word and its use in its context in the whole of Scripture. Let's continue to unpack it a little bit. Genesis 24, 67. When Isaac was comforted after his mother, Sarah's death, by marrying Rebekah, in this case, comforted, there is restoration of a family broken by death. Later on in the book of Job, Job's brothers and sisters comforted Nachum, him after his losses by bringing food and money to him, restoration from loss. Genesis 27, 42. The fourth occurrence of Nechem, where Esau is comforting himself in the light of losing his blessings as firstborn by planning to kill Jacob, who stole the blessing from him. Esau's plan was wicked and wouldn't really have restored blessings to him, but once again, this is a context of trying to restore blessings after a loss. So do you see the pattern here? Nachum is not so much about a change of mind as it is about restoring someone to a state of blessing. The theological word book of the Old Testament notes that this word is generally not used to indicate human repentance. 
Rather, it's used of God when he throws the switch from justice to mercy. And I think it's a good way to understand it. Or from mercy to justice. Hey, we got a switch right here. And I know illustrations break down, guys. Illustrations aren't the best, right? Judgment, mercy. Judgment, mercy. Judgment, mercy. Anyway, we'll keep it on mercy. I like mercy. That's still the same light switch. That hasn't changed. God doesn't change his mind. His desire has been the same and is the same. We're going to show you another passage of Scripture that's going to probably clear this even more for us. So when Jonah 3.10 says that God nakamed from his threat against Nineveh, the idea is not so much that God changed his mind as it is that God purposed to restore Nineveh as they mourn their losses caused by their own wickedness. This is something that God does many times throughout the Bible. Exodus 32, when God told Moses to stand aside so he could destroy the nation of Israel as they wandered in the desert, Moses interceded for the people and God relented. Brought restoration to a sin-sick people. Again, if we're going to understand this context, if we're going to understand this idea of God repenting, God, does he change his mind? We have to understand God and who he is in his nature. We have to understand God's immutability. God cannot change. The perfect holy one has no regrets. Right? If he could have regrets, then that means that that wasn't perfect. The perfect holy one has no regrets, no sin to repent of, right? There's nothing for the omniscient to learn because he knows everything already. No change of location for the omnipresent, because he's everywhere already. God's immutability. He's always hating sin, always bringing justice. He's always turning evil to good and always showing redemptive mercy in a billion places on the earth simultaneously at any given point in time. If he's always doing these things, he's not changing when he does them. It's part of God's eternal, unchanging nature to want to be asked to withhold judgment. Nate Wilson. I like the way Luther said it. Martin Luther said, The left hand of God's wrath is replaced by his right hand of blessing and freedom. That's pretty good, huh? Jonah, if you do not go to Nineveh, I am going to smack them down with the wrath of God. He takes the message, and they repent. And God hits them with a high five. 
the hand of blessing and freedom. Same God. Nothing's changed. The Ninevites were concerned with whether or not God would repent, but God was concerned with whether or not they and Jonah would repent. He's long-suffering. That's one of his characteristics. Not willing that any should perish. Hear this. If you're out here today and you've not turned to Christ, if you've not laid down the wickedness of your own hands and evils that your heart desires to do, you better hear this. God's not willing that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance. The wrath of God is, is, is being held back by the mercy of God. But God is not mocked. He does not consider slackness as some of us consider slackness. One day, guys, that mercy that's holding back the very wrath of God will step aside and the wrath of God will fall. I imagine there were countless many who heard the preaching for 120 years of Noah, a man of righteousness, calling people to repent and put their faith and trust in God. And he proclaimed the Word of God as a prophet of God and he called for people to repent and turn to God. And people laughed and scoffed and made fun and yeah, yeah, yeah. And the New Testament tells us it'll be just like it was in the day of Noah. People will go about marrying and eating and drinking and being merry and just doing life as if it's just another day in good old America and in the world to be. And all of a sudden, judgment comes. And I imagine countless many beat on that door, beat on that ark. Please, we believe you now. We believe you. Let us in. Let us in. Let us in. And the Bible says that God closed the door and no man could open it. Don't mistake God's holding back wrath as if it'll never come. It's only because of God's unchanging, His his mercy that's being extended, His grace that's being extended. And we see the mercy and the grace given in Jonah's life to even bring him to a point of turning, to bring that message to the people, which shows a pursuing love of God, not only to Jonah, but a pursuing love to even the enemy of Israel, God's chosen people, to the the people of, of Nineveh. What great mercy and love He's extending to even them. Not willing that any should perish. So verse 10 says, God relented. Oh, he kept his word. Oh, that place got overturned, did it not? Hey, that's a new creation. If any man is found in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things pass away. Behold, all things have become new. Oh, they got overturned. Listen, this preacher's heart got overturned at age 25. I'm not the man I was prior to salvation. There was an upheaval. There was a turnaround. There was an overthrow. This world got turned upside down for Jesus. Praise be to God. God kept His word. God stood. That's what what the text is telling us. Very important that we understand this. Here's the passage I'm reminded of as I think about this account in Jonah. Listen to what Jeremiah 18, 7 through 8 says. The instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom, 
to pluck up, to pull down, and to destroy it. If that nation against whom I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I thought to bring upon it. God hasn't changed his mind. He's the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. And guys, he still stands today offering his word to whosoever will let them come. If you're willing to repent of your sin today and put your faith and trust in him, he promises he will save you. He will change your life. He will forgive you of your sins. He will cleanse you from all unrighteousness. God still stands on His Word because His very character is what's on the line. We can stand on the promises of God. We can take God at His Word. God hasn't changed. Let, let, me, let me give you this thought. This goes back again to the, to the idea of that relenting. Nowhere in Scripture does it indicate that God's not emotive. In fact, emotions are often ascribed to God in anthropomorphic or anthropopathetic. That's probably my... <laughs> anyway, uh, anthropopathic. Is that right? Popathic? Popathic, thank you. See, I knew it was pathetic in the beginning, just trying to articulate it. In that language, the Bible describes God's actions and emotions in terms of human actions and emotions. Passages such as the two uh, we've cited earlier, reactions that God has to, uh, the emotional reactions God has to sin in those He created in His image, they're expressions of, quote, I didn't do that right the first time, guess I better figure out something else to do instead. God is grieving over disobedience and wickedness, a response that we should all have to sin. Again, this doesn't indicate a change in His nature or character. In fact, it is His holy nature that demands this response of grief. As finite created beings, we understand that there are consequences associated with our moral decisions. The Bible is quite clear on that matter, Galatians 6, 7. Yet the relenting of God is, in many cases, the voice of compassion and mercy from a long-suffering God extended to sinful creatures in need of grace. God does not change. However, He can change how He chooses to respond to an individual or nation's actions. Ken Ham. You know... I'm not a big fan of uh, horror movies. I used to be. Then God kind of, you know, did a work in me. So I'm just not a big fan of them. Now, don't get me wrong. Every now and then, you know, I like a little suspenseful thing. You know, who doesn't like a, you know, jumping out behind the door? <gasps> my kids do that. My wife all the time. It, 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 that's probably the likelihood is she would die of a heart attack is because of her children. <laughs> Sarah's the worst, man. Sarah's constantly, she'll hide down beside the bed. And of course, you know, I got to let it happen. I'm just like, and it was like every, I'm just like a nightly occurrence, isn't it? You know, Alice will come around. Oh, yeah. 
Sarah will be, Karis will be hiding in the closet. And she'll, oh, you know, it's like, ah. Oh. But there's an interesting article I read this past week. Uh, popular movie out right now. And some of you have seen it. I don't need to show of hands. really don't want to know you've seen it. But it's called Us. Um, and I think it's this Jordan Peele. And uh, anyway, throughout the film, evidently, there's a constant reference to Jeremiah 11, 11. Whether it's a scene in the back, you'll see something and it'll flash 11, 11. They constantly, throughout the movie, you keep seeing this subliminal, like, you know, reference to Jeremiah 11, 11. Jeremiah 11, 11 says this. And this is, to me, the real scary part of this horror movie. Because it's the number one movie in the world, I, thought, I think was what they were advertising in the commercials. This number one movie out today. And so everybody's seen And I am not endorsing it. Now, I am endorsing Unplanned. You need to go see that. Take your money and spend it on Unplanned. We need to send that message to Hollywood. But on this Jeremiah eleven eleven, it says, Behold... I will bring evil upon them, which they shall not be able to escape. And though they shall cry unto me, I will not hearken unto them. Now in the context of Jeremiah 11, 11, that's speaking to Israel. But guys, in a God who changes not, I am reminded that there will come a day when judgment will fall. And just as those who beat on that door begging to get into the ark, there will come a day. And many are saying that, that in the article I read, the, the, the person was a Christian author and they were making reference that, isn't it interesting, it's not necessarily Jordan Peele's reason for putting it in there. He's got some, some, some reasons why he put it in there and he does say that this movie is about Americans and, and our problem of being tethered to things that we shouldn't be and we should and so he's kind of trying to I guess put in a, a positive message of how we need to as Americans do some things differently but real repentance means turning from evil a surrender in the Spirit of God's calling on our life to surrender our life to Him, to follow after Him. And so, when I think about the scary part of this, is there will come a day in America when God's wrath will fall, when judgment will hit. And at that point, it'll be like in the day of Noah. And once that judgment falls and comes, I think it's fair to say, they shall cry unto me, and I will not hearken unto them. The thought of all these people seeing a movie, and it was the number one Googled uh, over the weekend phrase, Jeremiah eleven eleven. They all were driven to Scripture to find out what was that in the movie? What was that reference about? And to think that God is putting into the mind and into the heart of people who are lost a warning. Even that is mercy. 
to think that the, the, the largest, the most popular, countless millions seeing this movie and seeing this reference and then going home and Googling, what does that say? And they're reading the very Word of God. And now the choice rests. Will you be overturned? Will you recognize you thought that was scary? Wait till you see what's coming. You better get right. You better surrender this life now because there's coming a day when you will cry mightily to God and He will not hear because judgment has fallen. You can either accept the judgment that fell on Jesus Christ on your behalf and stand safe, secure, under the wings of Almighty God. Or you can stand and fall in the day of judgment when God's wrath comes. I found that very interesting that that's happening in our day. Conclusions. The irony is that Jonah's story parallels that of the Ninevites. Think about that. When you look at Jonah chapter 1 and Jonah chapter 3, it's a parallel. But here Jonah's fleeing. He's wicked. He's going that direction. Jonah chapter 3, he's repentant and he's returning and he's obeying God, taking God at his word. And the Ninevites were the wicked nation and here the repentant. So what can we learn from this? God does not change. You know, we can reflect in our own imperfect way the unchanging nature of God. By obeying Him. When we obey God, even just in simple things, simple things, it's a reflection of our trust in an unchangeable God. It's a manifestation of our faith. It's a way in which we live this out. Simple obedience. Galatians 6, 9 says, And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Like Jonah, instead of fleeing, let's respond in faith, guys. Let's respond in obedience. What has God called you to do? He called Jonah to take the message to the Ninevites. What has he called us to do, church? Let's just obey. What are some solid, rock-solid promises and truths of God that he's made clear? Let's just obey. Just obey those things. Don't give up. Don't grow weary in the doing. In due season, we will reap. 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Hey, that's a command. Man. We're, we're commissioned to do this. Let's keep on keeping on for Jesus. And if you ain't got involved, get involved. Not to do, but because it's done. And what a joy and what a privilege to work from that position. Trusting God. Because He's not limited and fickle and corrupt like we humans are. He will consistently bring about restoration from the destruction of sin when we repent of it and trust in Christ to save us. Guys, the enemy has come to lie, steal, kill, and destroy. And he wants to do that in your marriages. He wants to do that in your children's life. He wants to do that in your home. He wants to do that in your testimonies. 
but Christ came to give you life and give it abundantly. Let's simply obey Christ. Let's trust Christ. Let's go forth in the power of Christ and live our life set apart for Christ and see what God does in us and through us, Community Baptist Church. Hebrews 6, 17 through 20. In the same way, God, desiring even more to show to the heirs. Do you know your heirs? Of promise. The unchangeableness of His purpose. Interposed with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. It's impossible for God to lie. We who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. The hope we have as an anchor of the soul. A hope both sure and steadfast. Guys, Jesus is that anchor. In a changing world, tether yourself to the cause of Christ. Tether yourself, be anchored. Jesus is that anchor. That's our stability. So I conclude with this thought. John 3, 36. He who believes. The Ninevites believed. They believed God. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. And he who does not believe the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God abides on him. And if that's you guys, do not turn from the mercy of God because the only thing that awaits you is judgment. Instead, believe God. Take him at his word and surrender your heart and life to Jesus Christ today and ask him to overturn your heart, to change you from the inside out for the cause of Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that you do not change. You're not like man in that you, you change your mind and that you're somehow fickle or you kind of back and forth on, uh, on things. Lord, you're the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. And that is an assurance and an encouragement to us as followers of Christ, those who have repented of their sin and put their faith in the finished and complete work of Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, help us to understand that we simply need to obey. <coughs> help us to heed the calling that you put on our life. To know you and to make you known. To love you and to enjoy you for eternity. Lord, continue to work in our lives to chip away the sins that so easily beset us. Help us to lay those aside. Help us to obey in that. The small, still voice is putting his finger on areas of our life. Help us to keep surrendering those areas, whatever they may be. Lord, I pray that we'll continue to follow faithfully. And so give us that heart to believe. I thank you for this time and the sharing of your word. 
And I pray, Lord, if there's anyone watching, anyone listening that has never repented of their sin and turned to you, I pray that today would be their day of salvation. May they call upon the only name under heaven, given amongst men by which to be saved. May they call on the name of Jesus Christ and be changed, transformed from the inside out. Lord, help us to go from here believing you, taking you at your word, standing firm on those promises. You've kept your word. You've stood. May we enter into that mercy and grace that's readily available to all of us. Whosoever will, let them come. And we'll give you the praise in Jesus' name. Amen.